0: My name is Ellie Jones. Please give your attention to God's word from 2 Kings 22, verses three through 20. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king, t- the king sent Shephan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshullam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hands, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Akbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people, and for all Judea, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should be a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back the word to the king. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Ellie. Well, good morning. If, uh, if you don't know me, my, my name is Joey. Actually, come to think of it, even if you do know me, my name is Joey. And uh, I'm one of the lead pastors here at Faith. I'm excited this morning to talk to you from 2 Kings 22 to talk about grace. Let me give you an example. My wife, Jen, and I have a, a contract or an agreement. Um, it's not written down or anything. It's, it's not really, um, you know, recorded, but it's definitely formal. And the rule is this. Whoever gets out of bed last makes the bed. Do any of you have this rule? Whoever gets out of bed last, that person is the one who has to make the bed. Now, if I were in charge of the bed-making contract, uh, there wouldn't be one. Because what's the point? The bed, I mean, you're just going to mess it up as soon as you get back in. So, like... Why bother? But my wife disagrees. She, uh, she says there's nothing like climbing into you know, bed when it's freshly made, when there's all the sheets and the blankets are all in the right place. I don't get it. I didn't realize you were supposed to even wash your sheets all that often until <laughs> I got married. So. so she keeps me safe and clean. So that's the rule. Whoever gets out of bed last makes the bed. And there are particulars to the rule. As some of you were giving me the thumbs up, you understand. The sheets go like so, the blanket is folded like this, the pillows are stacked in this arrangement. Like this, this is the way it works. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And there's, there's blessings for keeping this agreement. We both get to enjoy a comfortable and well-made bed without strife and argument. There's curses for disobeying the agreements. If one of us neglects to hold up our end of the deal, the other one is completely and totally within their rights to remind and reprimand the other. Because when one of us fails, we both suffer. You know, we both have to climb into an unmade bed. Now, because I'm... It's really not that big a deal to me, but it is, you know, it is to her. So, so we, suffer. we both suffer. You know what I'm talking about. Now, because I'm more the morning person... Then she is, usually I'm the one who gets up first, but there's two days a week where she gets up early to head to work downtown, and it's, then it's my job to make the bed on those days. But because I rarely do it, I almost always forget. And she has every right to call down curses on me for my disobedience, and she usually does, which is good. That's part of the deal. But you know, sometimes, sometimes she gives me Grace. You know, a good gift, undeserved, unasked for, she gives me grace and takes on herself a burden that was not hers to bear on those particular mornings. She makes the bed for me and doesn't complain, doesn't point it out, just makes it and goes on with her day. Now, I've noticed that she's given me that grace enough times, and in more areas of our lives than just Making the bed, but enough times that when she does rightfully remind me of my responsibility to hold up my end of our covenant of bed making, uh, my heart immediately says, Hey, come on, you know, like we're in this together. Why can't you get my back? Like, why do you have to point out all the ways that I fail and do things wrong? Why don't you just, you know, make the bed? Right? We're a team. I'm presuming on her grace, if you haven't noticed. And come to expect it almost as my right, like I've earned it, like I deserve it. Now, if all of that seems way too overblown to you, like talking about grace in terms of making the bed and household chores and all that stuff, you're probably right. It is a little intensive a way to think about sharing the household responsibilities. But at least in, in a microcosm, it's a pretty good example of how God interacts with us, or at least how we tend to interact with God, or how we tend to respond to God's grace. Because I know we've all experienced little graces in our lives, whether from our parents or a spouse, from kids or a teacher, uh, from a boss, from friends. You know, we've all gotten to that point at one time or another where we begin to presume on it, to assume that these little gifts given to us are ours by right, like we deserve them. Not seeing those graces for the gift that they are. And I know we do that in little ways because we do it in big ways, too. We do that to God's grace, which is why we're going to take a few minutes this morning just to look again, uh, like we started last week, at the life of King Josiah. Josiah's life is instructive for us because Josiah is a thoroughly pagan king. Uh, His father, his grandfather, thoroughly pagan, but he chose to follow God early in his life. And now we're watching as he's spending the rest of his life trying to figure out how that works itself out in his life and in his kingdom. So as we look at his life this morning, we're going to see basically three main movements to the story that we're reading, which, which all teach us one, one big idea, that God's grace conforms us, confronts us, and comforts us. God's grace conforms, confronts, and comforts us. So if you haven't already, turn to 2 Kings 22 with me. If you're using the Bible in the seat underneath you, it's on page 387. You might find it faster if you just Google 2 Kings 22 and pull it up. So last week, as I said, we began this six-week series looking at the life of King Josiah. We're calling it Faith for Pagans because Josiah is living in a time in which Israel and Judah, the kingdom he's in charge of, is basically gone pagan. If you remember, he was the last great king of the nation of Judah. That was the southern half of Israel after it had been split into two and the northern half had been taken off into exile. And last week, we talked about how God drew Josiah to himself while he was still a young man, 16 years old, at the top of his kingdom. And while 2 Kings 22 picks up Josiah's story in the 18th year of his reign, when he was 26, uh, 2 Chronicles 34, the other record of the kings of Israel and Judah, it tells us kind of fills in the blanks for us a little bit, tells us that when Josiah was 20, six years before this, uh, he began a program to rid Judah and Jerusalem of all false worship, of all idols and homemade altars. And only after he began that process did he then turn his attention to the rebuilding of the temple, which we just read about. Now, 2 Kings skips over that six-year period and just goes straight to the temple project, which is where we pick up in 2 Kings 22, uh, verse 3. And right away as we begin reading, we, we see uh, God's grace conforming us or shaping us. Now, verse 3, I, I'm going to summarize a lot of the story here, but uh, in just these first few verses, Josiah is instructing Shaphan, his, his secretary, kind of what we would call today the secretary of state. Uh, he, he's instructing him to appropriate the temple funds for a rebuilding project, to clean up the temple and get it working fully again. He's basically told them spare no expense, don't even bother keeping accounting because I trust you I know what you're going to you're going to do what's right, but you got to do what needs to get done. Get the temple working again. And it's important to remember the role that the temple played in Israelite worship. It was basically I mean it was the center of worship in a way that we don't really have an analogy for anymore. Because in the biblical perspective, God sits enthroned in heaven with earth as his footstool. And the place where God makes contact with earth is in the temple. So if you want to hear from God, if you want to worship God, if you want to approach God, you have to go to the place where heaven meets earth. You have to go to the temple and worship there. But the people of Judah aren't going to the temple. Because of Josiah's pagan grandfather, Manasseh, the temple had become in itself more like a buffet line. I mean, it was no longer reserved just for the worship of Yahweh, but it contained altars and idols to a whole array and range of false gods. And even across the country, people worshipped and made sacrifices to these false gods at their own homemade altars and high places, wherever it was convenient. Now, even though Grandpa Manasseh had turned back to God at the end of his life, he didn't re-centralize the worship of God in the temple, but allowed it to continue on in wherever people found it convenient. And though at least at the end of his reign, people stopped worshiping false gods, they continued to offer sacrifices to the one true God on their own altars. And then, you might remember, Josiah's father came to power, and just the two short years that he was in charge, he reinstated false worship all across the country again. So as Josiah grew in faith, as he continued to seek after God, he knew that things needed to change. So having begun the work of cleansing the country from false worship, he now began to rebuild the temple, working to restore true worship to the nation of Judah. Now you may be wondering, like, what's so wrong with people worshiping God at homemade altars all across the land? At least this is the question that kind of gets to me, is like, I, I don't see why that's such a big deal. You know, Why not allow people to go on worshiping God as long as they're worshiping the right God? Well, I guess one thing we have to keep in mind, and something we often miss, is that the relationship between God and his people is not necessarily one of, it's not a trivial relationship in which we can just do whatever we want or worship wherever we want. It's not, it's not like when, you know, when Methodists start showing up at a Baptist service. That's not what's going on here. Uh, God has given some very specific instructions and arrangement to the relationship. This relationship, if you remember, I said last week is, is more like a marriage. That illustration is used throughout the Old Testament of God's relationship with Israel. And God is a rightly jealous husband, jealous for his wife's affections. So like any husband, he doesn't want his wife to just put her affections on other men or on other gods in this case when we're talking about false gods. And when we're talking about worshiping the true God, but all over the nation, it's kind of like allowing, like allowing Judah to worship wherever they want is like trying to keep a relationship alive, trying to keep a marriage alive strictly across Facebook, never seeing each other in person. See, running after other gods or keeping distant from God, it's not so much about breaking God's law. It's about breaking his heart. He says, I want a marriage with you. I want a relationship with you. And you can't just do that any which way you want. Judah, the nation, has been in this cycle of going from becoming distant from God to having an affair with other gods to coming back to God, and it's just going over and over and over again. They're swiping right on whatever God catches their fancy. At the very least, becoming emotionally distant and running off. In fact, you think about it in terms of Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 and 5. It's a famous passage that many of you know. Some call it the key to the entire Old Testament when Moses says, this is what you need to say and repeat over and over again, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And that's not a command so much as it is a marriage vow. And Judah has been breaking their vows. To say that God, has, uh, to say that God shouldn't get angry or take offense when his, his people turn to other gods is like, saying that a person has no right to be angry and offended when their spouse begins flirting and running off with other people. God saying, you're mine. Love me. And how could Josiah love God with the full extent of his heart, with his soul, with his strength, if, if God is just only one of a number of gods in the line? I mean, How could the entirety of his being be focused fully and solely on the one true God if other idols are competing for his attention? How do we love God, first and last and ultimate, when there's so many other things that compete for our love? The first step for Josiah is also the first point of application for us, uh, to immerse yourself in worship. Really, to immerse yourself in worship. See, Josiah institutes a program to re-centralize and reinstate true worship in Judah. To, to begin to reshape the people of Judah in the story of God. Because only, only true worship, only immersing ourselves in the story of the goodness of God can, can tune our hearts and redirect our affections towards God. Now, that's an idea we're going to dig into more in the coming weeks. But for now, we need to understand that that only immersing ourselves in the story of God's grace will conform us to his grace, will shape us into a loyal and loving people. The story of a God who led his people out of slavery is a story of grace, one that shapes its people to respond to God in love. But we're not to presume on that grace. Instead, take it as a gift. God's grace conforms us. That's why Josiah was rebuilding the temple. So the story of God's grace in the history of Israel could be told again and again and again. But the story doesn't stop there. Just just as God's grace conforms us, his grace also confronts us, picking up in verse 8. In the process of emptying out all the treasures from the coffers of the temple for use in the rebuilding project, the, the high priest stumbles across a hidden treasure buried deep. Josephus kind of expounds on this story when he, he supposes, that, supposes that this lost book of the law was at the very bottom of the treasure chest, underneath all the money. So only once all the money was removed could the true treasure be found. Verse 8 tells us that Hilkiah, the high priest, who discovered this book or at least to whom the book was brought, said to Shaphan, the secretary, secretary of state he says, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now that shouldn't sound surprising to us, but it was surprising to them. The book of the law had been lost, Some assume, for around 75 years or so, at least since the beginning of Manasseh's reign when it was no longer relevant to the king. It's been lost for 75 years. Josiah has never heard or had read to him the, the commands of God. He, he doesn't, it, there's so much of, of what's missing from his understanding of God until Hilkiah says, I have found the book of the law. In the house of the Lord. And he gave the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan read it. And then Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Basic business stuff. Verse 10, Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now most scholars agree that what's referred to by the title of the book of the law is the book we call Deuteronomy. I know, everybody's first choice for your morning devotions. Deuteronomy is one of the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, uh, and it basically records in a summary form the definition of the relationship between God and his chosen people, Israel. And even though we may think of this book as somewhat dry and full of commands, uh, verse 11 tells us that when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes that wasn't an accident. That was on purpose. Uh, that's because Josiah heard read things like Deuteronomy 6, 14 and 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you. And he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Or Deuteronomy 11, 1, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Or Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then there's a list of blessings, but if you go a little further down to verse 15 of chapter 28, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So you can imagine how, given the history of Judah, of the nation, uh, all that Josiah heard disturbed him. This is the first time he's heard what God requires read in his presence. And hearing this, hearing that God's chosen people were called to love God, to obey him fully because of what God had already done for them in choosing them and loving them and delivering them from slavery in Egypt, hearing the blessings and the curses that come with obedience and disobedience, Josiah was brought to his knees. 2 Kings 22.11 says he tore his clothes, he tore his robe, which is a pretty common sign of grief in the Jewish culture. Grief because Josiah recognized that the nation he led had violated its responsibility to hold up its end of their covenant relationship with God. His nation had broken their marriage vows. And he's just finding out now how bad it really is. See, as the covenant administrator, as the king, uh, he had the responsibility to keep his people on track and fulfilling their responsibility in the relationship to love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength. And they hadn't done that. They had set their hearts, their strength, and their trust on other gods. Josiah had failed in his kingly responsibility to inspire his people toward worship of God alone. Even at the very moment of hearing these words read, Josiah knows that in the temple there's still altars and idols to other gods. He hasn't managed to fully abolish false worship yet, and I think the weight of that is bearing down on him. So he tears his robes in grief and repentance and sends a coalition of trusted advisors to go get some more information. Take a look at verse 12, and the king commanded a whole bunch of guys to go, verse 13, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Notice Josiah's response. When he's confronted with the word of God telling him he has failed to live up to the love relationship that God desires for him and his people, he responds in grief and repentance. You know, I've noticed as a pastor over the last uh, five, six, seven years, I've been counseling people and students and others that there are different kinds of repentance when God's grace confronts people with their sinfulness. I've seen people for whom God's grace is not really a gift, but something they presume on. And, and when they're confronted with the knowledge of, uh, of what they've done wrong, sometimes ask for forgiveness, um, which is good, but that's about as far as it goes. Um, and I'm guilty of this, too. I want God's grace to kind of quickly cover my back so I can get on with life. But there's others uh, for whom God's grace is a gift, when they find out they've been doing something wrong, they've, they've broken their relationship with God. They take God's grace as an opportunity to root out their sin as deep as it goes, inviting more feedback and inviting other people to speak into what they see, not trying to cover their sin with God's grace, but remove it by his grace. And that's, that's what's happening here with Josiah, being confronted by God's grace. He goes looking for more information. How bad is it really? Show me how deep my sin goes. And now we get to watch God's grace comfort him after it's confronted him. So a group of officials, this is around verse 14, a group of officials, including the secretary of state, the high priest, and they're all sent to consult with a, a prophetess named Huldah. We don't know much about her because she only shows up in this story here, but we know at least from this short narrative that she was someone whom God had chosen as his spokesperson Uh, From this short narrative, we know she was accustomed to representing God's authority before kings and high priests. Uh, She had the authority of God to declare what was true law and what wasn't. She's the person that Josiah thought of first when he wanted to know for sure what the scripture said and how it applied. So when the coalition gets to her and they ask her about the application of what they've read in the book of the law to their current situation, her reply is not necessarily reassuring. Verse 15, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. Some commentators think that Josiah chose to go to hold of the prophetess because as a woman she would be more likely to soften what she said. That doesn't really come across here. God's judgment is final and exact. There's no tempering of the language. God will do to the peoples exactly what he promised in Deuteronomy. If we took the time to read all of Deuteronomy 28, you'd notice... After about 13 verses of so or bl- of blessing, there's 54 straight verses of, of curses for disobedience. And God says, what you read, that still applies. No exemptions. But she goes on and God's grace comforts. Verse 18, she says, but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. And that's grace. That's grace. Because the king, the nation's representative in the covenant relationship, because he sincerely and humbly repented, God says he will hold back judgment from Josiah and from the nation of Judah during Josiah's reign. That's grace, grace which comforts an undeserved, unearned, unasked-for gift. Now, God has told Judah exactly what he will do if they fail to hold up their end of the relationship, to love God with their whole heart, with their whole mind, and with their whole strength, and they've failed. So he has every right to follow through on his end, but that doesn't mean he's excited to. See, it's hard to understand the dynamic between God and his chosen people as long as we think that they're in an essentially transactional relationship, a, a kind of quid pro quo, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours relationship. Uh, see, God doesn't need his people, Israel. He didn't choose them for his sake in order to get something from him that he couldn't get anywhere else. Uh, he, God doesn't need them, and he doesn't need anything from them. God chose his people. God always chooses his people, not for his sake, but for theirs. So if you read the entirety of Scripture with a careful eye to the analogies used for the relationship between God and his people, you'll notice that rarely, if ever, are the analogies militaristic in nature or power oriented or even transactional. In other words, you don't really read God saying, I'm your conqueror, you're my subject. Or I have defeated you in battle, now submit to me. Instead, you read things like, I'm your rescuer. I'm your redeemer. I'm your father, be a loyal son. I'm your husband, be a loyal wife. See, over and over, God says to his people, I have chosen you. I have loved you. I have rescued you and redeemed you. I have lifted you up and cleaned you off, and now I offer you life. Choose life. And over and over we read of God's people turning their backs on him and snubbing his love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I mean, it's a simple command, right? Love. Love the Lord your God. Not, not the kind of love that the powerful demand of the weak, like a, a dictator demanding that his people love them, or, or like Big Brother brainwashing his followers into loving him. This is the kind of love that is earned, because when you read the story of God, you, you see that God always demonstrates his love first, and then calls us to love him in return. That's the story of grace. That's the story of King Josiah. That's the story of the cross. Uh, Because there's no, there's here's the thing about grace. There's no such thing as grace without cost. There's no such thing as a grace that costs the giver nothing. Even if it's something as simple as making the bed for me when I forget. Right? That's a free gift. But there's a cost attached to it. It costs my wife the time it takes for her to do what I should have done. And it costs her the right to be annoyed at me for not doing it. Because if she maintains the right to be annoyed at me, it's no longer a gift. Now it's manipulation. It's no longer grace. Grace is an unexpected, undeserved gift. Never to be counted on to be repeated. As if it were ours by Right. We know God is a God of grace. We know God delights in showing us grace, but we don't presume on it. We depend on it. We don't take it for granted. We don't assume that we can do whatever we want and then let his grace pick up the tab for us and clean up after us. That's the story of grace. Let's bring that story home for us. The grace that God showed the people of Israel in choosing them, in loving them, in bringing them out of slavery, it conformed and confronted and comforted Josiah. And the grace that God has shown us by choosing us, by loving us, by bringing us out of slavery to sin, it too conforms and confronts and comforts us. See, our story is also a story of grace. Uh, But our story is not a grace that forestalls judgment, as Josiah's is, because judgment is still coming to Judah. Uh, Even though King Josiah humbles himself before God in repentance, judgment is only delayed. When Christ, our true king, when he came, his humble sacrifice didn't delay judgment, it fulfilled judgment. His death didn't push judgment out into the future. His death drew judgment into himself. It absorbed it and met the judgment fully. Unlike King Josiah, our King Jesus gave us the ultimate grace, the ultimate undeserved gift that we could never earn, never ask for, never deserve. When he, when he took the, for us the entirety of the punishment for our disobedience and set us free from slavery to sin. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Father, your grace conforms us to you, our Redeemer. Your grace confronts us with how far we fall in loving you. And your grace comforts us. And the promise that you have sent Christ to not only obey in our behalf, but die in our place. So that now when you see us, you see us through the light of the obedience and the sacrifice of your son. You've given us the ultimate grace, elevated us to your presence. In light of that grace, Lord, let us be a people who are like Josiah who respond in repentance and love because of that grace that you've shown us. In the name of Jesus, and because of your matchless grace, amen.